Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Food. I'm your moderator, and my name is Valerie St. Brossi. Today I'm speaking with Demet Guzet. She is the author of the book Food on Foot, A History of Eating on Trails and in the Wild. It was published this year, 2017, by Rowan and Littlefield. Demet Guzet is a food instructor a lecturer on food and culture at USAC in Verona, in Italy. She additionally writes extensively on food and food culture. She is a member of the Association of Food Journalists, International Association of Culinary Professionals, and the Guild of Food Writers. She has a PhD in food science from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and she is also a trekker. She has been on Mont Blanc and Mount Ararat in Turkey. Demet Guzet, welcome to New Books in Food. Hi, Valerie. Thank you for having me. We are very happy to be talking about food that we don't normally eat ourselves. This will um, expand our understanding of staying alive in extreme situations. Can you tell me how the idea for this book came to you? The idea for this book uh, came around uh, three years ago. Well, two and a half years ago, I was in a uh, hiking trip and a high altitude trekking trip rather in Ladakh, in the northern uh, in India, with a group of uh, seven other people, more than 20 horses, uh, a kitchen, a mobile kitchen, two cooks and our helpers. We were um, at an altitude uh, there where no vegetation exists, really dry land. And also water was difficult to find. And in these conditions, for about three weeks, the, the mobile kitchen and the cooks cooked for us delicious breakfast with omelets and, and oatmeal. They cooked uh, nice lunches that we could pack and eat along the way. We would walk uh, the whole day and the food was taken care of. And in the evening we we'll close it with a nice dinner and conviviality in a tent. It was quite incredible. This made me think that, that I have to do something. I had to tell people how uh, explorers or trekkers uh, in modern times, but also always have been eating, how special experience is. Because um, these meals are created out of nothing, even when you have the luxury of having the horses with you or a, or a kitchen crew, which I have to admit was a luxury situation compared to a lot of the, the examples I give in the book. So um, the idea started there. Maybe I thought I would write an article. I would uh, submit it to a journal. And um, slowly it grew bigger from there because I was um, back in, uh, in Holland. I was living in Holland at the time. 
And I saw a call for writers from Ken Albala, and he's a professor of history, food history specifically, at the University of the Pacific in California. And uh, he was looking for authors to write several books, and him being the editor. And one of the books that caught my attention, it was called Food on Foot. And I immediately contacted him. I, um, I told him about my idea. We discussed and negotiated a little bit. And what I had in mind, which was a book about food in the mountains, and um, uh, what he had in mind, which was a little bit broader, became what the book is today. So I covered different landscapes. I um, researched uh, on different timelines. So I made it a little bit broader, and I think this made it also more interesting for, for the general audience. I couldn't agree more. Uh, being able to think about food in the mountains and then read again about food in the desert, what a contrast there is. I wonder if you would talk a little about something uh, that actually originated, I believe, from the Native American diet, pemmican, Mm -hmm. and its Mm -hmm. very important role for explorers and climbers. It's true. It's something that came along my path every time I was doing research, no matter in what geography or landscape. It's uh, quite interesting. It sounds very simple, but of course, it's not something we can find and eat uh, today unless we are uh, recreating the history. And there are some survival groups uh, in the U.S. especially that uh, are interested in such recipes because they do trainings in uh, in the wilderness, etc. So I have never eaten it myself. I have to say, but it is something that um, the Canadian fur traders uh, first saw Indian Americans um, eating or preparing. And it is what it is is a dried meat mixed with fat, a lot of fat, a lot of grease, and in some cases berries or salt or sugar, whatever they had uh, basically at hand. Because Indians uh, lived uh, uh, like nomads, they would hunt, they would have meat, but not always. So they had to find a way to preserve the meat. Often it was dried uh, or smoked and later made into a powder and mixed with, with fat. So this way they could really keep it for a long time. And what I saw is that this um, then became the food of explorers. It was, um, it was really one of the staples they had, along with army biscuits and uh, maybe sugar and salt. It was so essential because it gave a lot of calories. It gave a lot of uh, fat. It gave uh, protein. And, of course, it didn't go bad. There were other problems with it, though, because people hated the taste of it. And this is why I thought of uh, producing it myself once. It is um, um, apparently a little bit disgusting. It's not like uh, bacon or beef jerky that we can imagine. It's quite delicious. It's, um, I think, also because it's repeated so much that they would eat it day in and day out, whether it's in the mountains or in a polar exploration, that I think people got really tired of it. So uh, they try to re- make different recipes of it. There have been uh, some scientific studies where they would supplement it with different oatmeal or types of uh, berries, um, or they would change the amount of uh, other things they put inside this pemmican mix to make it more delicious. There, there was a, almost a competition, a, um, an ambition to create a pemmican recipe that was the ultimate recipe that everyone would like. But in the end, it was, uh, it was very unsuccessful. And uh, I have to mention that it was also eaten in the army. So you can see that there is an interest in, uh, in this type of food to have it uh, appetizing or at least 
enough to, to be eaten and not thrown away. Uh, but uh, anyway, so I think it lost uh, the, the um, game of taste or it, it lost the, um, the interest of people because we don't find it today. It's not in, in nobody's uh, shopping baskets when we're going in the wild, wild or wilderness. What's so interesting about it, it, it is it was used across terrain and it was used for a very long period of time, wasn't it? That's true. And it's because, of course, it's stability and it did not require any uh, special packaging. In the Native Americans, um, Indians, it was, um, it was put in a pouch of animal skin. But later on, you could, you could keep it in any kind of container and it wasn't dependent on uh, any high technology to, to preserve it or to keep it with you. I think that made it a very strong, uh, iconic uh, ingredient, food. It was the food that no one liked eating. <laughs> Is that so? Exactly. Exactly. It's so much that in, um, in this successful Everest uh, climb in 1953, uh, the expedition doctor, David Pugh, um, asked everyone in the team, uh, to, to the British uh, explorers, mountaineers, what do they want to eat in the high mountain? Because he knows appetite is a big problem. He knows that people above a certain uh, altitude do not want to eat anything. They don't have appetite. They, they cannot digest. They have anyway nausea. And uh, he asked them what they want to eat and what they don't want to eat. And out of the things that they don't want, definitely was pemmican. They didn't want to have any pemmican and army biscuits, which were often infected with worms. So you can see that uh, uh, they're iconic, but for the bad reason. Well, it even it even wouldn't go to Everest. <laughs> uh, can you tell tell us what the uh, 1953 diet of Hillary and Norgate Tensing was the two um, men who summited Mount Everest in 1953. Yeah, it's um, it's an amazing trip. You also see their picture on the cover of my uh, book. I was very happy to be able to use that picture. And it shows them having a tea after after they have already climbed the mountain. So tea was uh, certainly in the in the list of things they took with them. As I said before, uh, their expedition doctor, uh, which was one of the team members, did this survey and found uh, what people wanted to take with them because he wanted to create something called the luxury box. So what they would do, unlike other explorations or mountaineering expeditions of the time, was he created a menu, a ration for the lower camp, where people would eat uh, normal dishes like rice and potatoes, which was available there. And at higher altitudes, they would uh, eat a mixture of army rations, lighter army rations, and things that they wanted to eat, like what was in this uh, luxury box. And all the mountaineers gave a list of things they really would want to have and not want to have. Like I, like I said, the Pentagon was definitely in the blacklist. And in the luxury box, they had uh, things they would have an appetite for when they arrived at high altitude. So there were things like um, uh, candle mint bar, which is a very British uh, product, uh, quite uh, uh, recognizable by mountaineers also today. And they had uh, some candies or uh, canned fruits, sardines, things that are appetizing because either they're very savory or very sweet. And even though they look a little bit 
inefficient or illogical to our thinking now when we think about efficiency, think about weight. Um, they are very important because they, I believe, contributed to the success of this uh, climb. They made them uh, at least happy, feel better, uh, feel appetite, so they could actually digest these foods. When one is preparing an expedition, uh, whether it's a mountaineering expedition, whether it's an Antarctic expedition, uh, a desert expedition, who is the person who actually plans the food? It's not the scientists necessarily, is it? Well, it depends which timeline we're looking at and where, because nowadays, uh, depending on the expedition's importance, of course, if it's a um, if it's a big team that is going to the mountains, there might be a, a person dedicated to the planning of food. But if it's a trip among friends, even if they do it at a professional level, it might be that the expedition leader decides. Especially if this is the person who is financially responsible for the expedition, they might decide on the logistics, and food would be part of it. Again, then it depends if they are uh, on a uh, summit uh, uh, attempt to a high mountain, if they're on a trekking event. So it depends on a lot of things. But especially if we talk about uh, harsh conditions and ambitious plants like in the mountains or polar uh, trips, then of course there is someone that plans the, the meals, at least one person. But I also uh, looked at pilgrims or, um, or other um, motives uh, for walking and eating, and there of course Sometimes there is no plan because pilgrims didn't plan their food, but they just kind of um, went there with the idea of abstaining from food and uh, got along with what they they were given uh, by the villagers or depending on where they were, maybe uh, religious institutions. Does, um, is there any such thing as extreme nutrition as a subject? Uh, If a, if a, person planning an expedition wants to be informed about what should be purchased, what should be included. How do you learn that? I think the best way you learn it is by experience. And of course, nowadays, people have a lot of material, a lot of resources in terms of books and videos and other people with experience. So I think people don't have to start from zero knowledge. But I think the best way, at least for me, that works is that you go on an expedition or even if if it's a small hike and then you make a mistake uh, or you do something, you make a decision and you see later that could have been better. And that's such a big learning that has a a super high personal value. Um, And this could be something like, uh, for example, it's better to carry things that are lighter for obvious reasons, especially if you don't have a porter or uh, or horses or donkeys, but even if you have them, uh, weight is an issue. This is learned, um, but it's also very intuitively easy to understand why. So their packaging becomes an uh, important factor. So anything that is in plastic uh, bags or pouches, whether it comes like that from the producer or you prepare it yourself and put it in a, a packaging in a different way, in a rationed way, that's, that's a big factor. Then um, the diversity of the food is very important. And this you learn when you go on a trip and you think you're going to survive with energy bars and, uh, and uh, freeze-dried uh, meals for a few weeks. 
and then you realize that you don't want to eat anything anymore and you lose weight and you come back uh, and next time you don't want to do that again because this um, lack of diversity in taste is very, very uh, challenging, even for hikers, not uh, necessarily for mountaineers or uh, more challenging uh, trips. So, um, of course, the, the more... Um, the higher you go in the mountain or the longer the trip, the, the more important it becomes to plan the food of the trip better. For example, um, for high mountaineers, uh, it becomes a matter of uh, life or death to have the right food and enough food, but also to have the right appetite. For example, um, about 14,000 feet, you don't have an appetite. That means not all foods are suitable. In a polar expedition, maybe fatty foods are good because you need high energy, something that keeps you warm and gives you a high uh, caloric value. But in, uh, in the mountains, this would be uh, difficult to digest. So instead, high salty and sugary foods are better. Sugar because it helps you adjust to the, to the altitude and salt because it's appetizing. And also, of course, water is a big element. In high altitudes, you have to drink a lot of water to help the body acclimatize to the uh, reduce oxygen conditions. Water is a very heavy supply. How can people carry enough water when they're a summiting K2 or Everest or such uh, long trek mountains? It is true. It's the heaviest thing because when we look at canned foods or uh, or even cured meats, we always think, okay, this has a lot of water in it. So for the same reason, you don't carry fruits, fresh fruits to the, the mountains. So water itself is obviously uh, the, the heaviest, the least efficient thing to uh, to have. But of course, uh, some of it needs to be carried for the, the duration of the, the day's walk or climb. And usually in the evenings, uh, you melt ice, uh, snow. Uh, or that are, if there are water sources like rivers uh, after filtration and purification, those waters are used because it's impossible for a long journey to uh, supply its own water uh, the, the whole time. And in the book, I talk about also the desert runners. And imagine that there is a, this is a landscape with no water and they cannot carry uh, water for, for the days that they're running. So in that case, uh, the organization supplies uh, them water every day, uh, about two liters. That's the minimum that they have to carry with them. So this way they uh, replenish the water needs. When I was reading about uh, the high-altitude climbers, uh, and I thought, well, there's snow. They'll melt snow. But there was, uh, there was one description you had. It was so cold that the water couldn't melt and they they had a certain provision with them and I can't remember at the moment what it was so they couldn't defrost it because everything was frozen and for some reason they could not light their fire so they were surrounded by potential of of uh, um, hydration but they could not access it it seems so ironic. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes uh, the resources might be there, but accessing it uh, is the challenge. And this uh, happens in nature in different ways. But water is a good example. 
So, for example, in a high altitude, it's difficult to melt water even when you have a stove and the means to do so because water boils at a higher temperature. So you actually wait longer for um, for heat to uh, to arrive to the same uh, level at uh, um, lower altitude. So meals cook uh, slower and everything becomes a burden. And for this reason, the drinking becomes less also at a high altitude if, even if the means are there because... Uh, it becomes a hassle to actually uh, have the enough uh, few liters of water that one needs. And um, your uh, example might be the one where I talk about Reinhold Messner and his brother being stuck in Parvat. Yeah. And they have uh, no food with them, but tablets of vitamins, um, like these effervescent tablets. Uh, it's not meant to substitute food, but that's what they had with them. Uh, after they finished their biscuits or crackers they had, they didn't plan to be stuck in the mountain, which is what happened. And they tried to melt uh, ice uh, from around the rocks where they were sleeping, staying the night. But it was very difficult uh, to melt this uh, vitamin pill because uh, it required more water, clearly. And they tried to melt it with their saliva, but it wouldn't work. So it was such a tragic scene that it uh, it sticks to your mind. And and Reinhold Messner in that case says, if only we had a cup of soup. And that stayed with me because it, it, is, it is a tragedy that is expressed in a very simple way because a cup of soup is such a simple food that we wouldn't even think is a matter of survival to have it or not. One of the things that struck me over and over in the book was all the stories of the, the different explorers Famous ones, Admanson, Scott, or the climbers of Everest, the numerous climbers like Mesner, like uh, Hillary and uh, uh, Tenzing. Uh, what was going wrong in the course of their uh, their uh, climb, in the course of their uh, trek to the poles, also the North Pole? This book tells you everything that you forgot to think about because you weren't planning for this kind of a disaster or this kind of a turn of events. And I think this is one of the most instructive things in the whole book is how precarious it is to venture somewhere extreme. Could you talk a little about that? Mm -hmm. It's fascinating because every journey on foot starts uh, with a sense of adventure, with a sense of exploration. The moment we leave the door behind us, it could uh, go wrong at any moment. Of course, some trips are more prone to that than others because maybe the journey lasts for years. If it's the first trip to the South Pole, it starts with a ship journey and then there is the journey on the Huskies. And in a mountain, it's the same. There are different stages and different challenges. So planning is one element. They couldn't always foresee the last stages of the trip. In hindsight, when now we look at, the, at an event, uh, one of those that I describe in the book, sometimes they look so silly and so um, easy to prevent. And you wonder, were they not uh, uh, aware of it? Didn't they plan well? But sometimes uh, we have to imagine ourselves in their shoes that they have 
um, either not the means, for example, the knowledge of uh, uh, vitamin C in, in polar exploration was uh, not there. People had scurvy, uh, which is the disease of not having enough vitamin C, and they would even uh, die from it. But they, vitamin C was not invented. So you cannot blame them for not planning well because there was no vitamin pills uh, until 1930s. And all these, uh, these trips in um, early 20th century, um, they had to find the, the cause. And if couldn't, then they have to be lucky to come back soon enough to, to survive the trip. And imagine these trips are two or three years long. So it's very difficult to expect them to plan for such a long trip in the best way because they run out of uh, food, they run out of uh, gear, their animals die, they end up eating the animals maybe uh, <laughs> or each other. So history is full of uh, disasters because of, uh, of lack of food or uh, things that go wrong. And, and it's interesting that you bring up vitamin C because this was one of the great scourges during the ocean explorations of the 14th and 15th centuries. And then it continued on as the British sailed and, and continued exploration that all the crews lacked vitamin C and uh, someone discovered that they needed limes, they needed citrus. And British sailors got the nickname limeys because <laughs> they were eating limes. And, and I'm sure at that point it was not, we need more vitamin C. That, that was, as you say, didn't come till the 1930s. But this uh, physical lack and its um, serious health consequences was a problem even then. So it was a 200, 300-year-old problem to solve, wasn't it? It, it was um, interesting because they were looking at it um, different than, of course, how we look at it today. So they saw a link between canned food, for example, and the scurvy that uh, was the issue. And they thought, is there something in the canned food that is causing this disease? So I'm talking about, again, the early 1900s. And it's, it's funny because now we know that there's nothing in the canned food. It's the lack of what uh, should be in there that is the problem. Because, of course, canned food, whether it's fruit or vegetable, doesn't have the same amount of vitamin C as fresh uh, uh, foods or uh, vegetables or meats would have. So it's the kind of um, uh, lack of understanding, the gap in science uh, in this empirical um, but sometimes wrong knowledge that makes it very interesting to, to read because today it's, uh, it's of course ridiculous. But uh, when we look at the first successful uh, trip to the South Pole by Amundsen, a Norwegian sailor and explorer, he um, found a very creative way to solve the, the problem of, of scurvy. And he was very proud that uh, he said this is probably uh, uh, why I was successful. And uh, he talked about his diet and the diet of his men a lot in his, uh, in his uh, journals. What he did is he took the regular rations, like uh, we discussed before, pemmican, biscuits, there was milk powder, chocolate. He did some modifications, like uh, he claims that his pemmican was uh, enriched with oatmeal and and uh, sugar, and it was better in taste than uh, 
this heart, uh, its inability. But he also took huskies with them, with him and his men. Uh, he had um, five men with him and three tons of supply. And this is for after they left their ship uh, for the foot journey. And they carried 52 huskies with, us, with them. And with the knowledge that they would eat some of the huskies along the way, they would kill the huskies and for their fresh meat, which was, of course, full of um, also vitamin C, among other things. And they would feed the, some of their huskies to other huskies and eventually also to the men. And this helped them survive uh, the, the trip, the conditions. And his men came back uh, in good health conditions. And, and I think uh, this made a difference between Amundsen's expedition and the Scott expedition, which instead uh, turned into a disaster and is known in history for, for this reason. Let's talk a little more about Amundsen and Scott, because one one trip was so well planned, as you were just describing nutritionally, and the other was uh, a series of unfortunate uh, disasters. I remember something about Admanson. He laughed about Scott. Um, they may have met before their trips, but uh, he laughed because he said, oh, the English love their dogs. They would never eat a dog, but <laughs> my men will eat the dogs and we will have more meat, therefore. It's very matter of fact, and it would be an interesting study to to look into at the time people's opinion about eating uh, eating dogs or other animals that uh, were maybe domesticated. Well, we cannot say the huskies are domesticated, but how were people thinking about it in different countries and in their case? Why was his approach so different than others? Because he's so proudly describing in his journals the success that he achieved due to the this creative solution. And I would wonder if it was um, practiced in other trips. Because he explain, explains that they, they ate dog cutlets, and he describes how they cooked it. He said they didn't have a pan or oil to cook it with, so they boiled the meat, but it was very good. So he proudly describes his, uh, um, his solution. So he takes a lot of credit for that. And, and also about his own pemmican, he brags about it. Uh, it it's, it's quite fascinating. And you can imagine the, uh, the rivalry they have between men, but also their countries. At the time, these are very uh, big events to organize. The funding is difficult to get. It's a national pride, just like also the mountain trips to Everest. Um, it, it, they're epic journeys, and it's amazing how um, now we can look back and see uh, something so specific like eating meats uh, of the huskies and how it helped them survive. One of the... Um uh, one of the setbacks for Scott, if I remember correctly, was that he was not able to get to his food supply, which was uh, the, the, health, the health of uh, Scott's health and his remaining uh, companions was so deteriorated that they could not press on to where their supplies were. And uh, wasn't that, isn't that the case? That's true, and that's really tragic. And this, uh, what happened is they were just 11 miles from their uh, supplies. Yeah. 
but they couldn't walk more than two, um, more than a mile or two a day. And they were exhausted. They um, they were out of food, out of energy. They they had starvation. They had scurvy, and it was extremely cold. So it is definitely um, a definition of a, tra- a tragedy because uh, if they could have just uh, gone a little bit further, they would have been at least safe. And um, it seems like this is a matter of uh, life or death in in such uh, environment. The story of these two expeditions continues to intrigue readers of adventure because it is so um, fraught with uh, the character of the Antarctic being the the determining feature of how you will survive or how you won't. Now, I would like to take us to somewhere warmer and ask you to talk a little about your fascinating chapter on the first women climbers. Uh, That was in the Alps, wasn't it? Yes, it was in the Alps, and mostly by Victorian women, but there were also French women uh, climbers. And uh, it was the late 19th century, and women were, of course, at that time, wearing big hats and large dresses, and they took that to the mountains. It was um, the extension of being in the, in the outdoors, in big picnics, and this uh, Victorian romantic idea of enjoying the scenery with uh, abundance of food. From there, it evolved into, of course, mountaineering for men and later for women. But how women were introduced is uh, very fascinating because... They, their clothing was impractical and it was not accepted always for them to be in the mountains. Well, in the beginning, of course, also the doctors advised them um, differently. It was believed that, or they were trying to make women believe, that if they went uh, and did strenuous uh, exercise, like mountaineering or, uh, um, or such things, their reproductive organs would be affected. Their motherhood, their... And, uh, their wifehood would be affected and they would not uh, um, be suitable anymore. So there were all this scare and unscientific, unproven uh, claims that uh, tried to keep women at home. But of course, they were um, not as uh, um, limited as we, we imagine or sometimes uh, we are portrayed because they were interested in arts, in nature, in documenting and uh, uh, understanding the, their environment. So when women did go to the mountains, especially around the time when uh, uh, the medical community was not so well respected, it was not um, as scientific and uh, people were doubting the advice of doctors, they they had brought a fresh view because they would keep journals and they would um, um, have a different approach in the mountains than men. They sure had ambitions and wanted to be the first in some mountains and race with each other in a different way, but they uh, also talked less about themselves and captured more the the uh, experience. And that, that was quite refreshing for me to see. And what is very interesting is the kind of food they took. And this was common for men or women at the time. The the first climbs in, in Everest, but also later on uh, uh, until the 30s or so in the, in, um, in the Alps, sorry, and in Everest, they had so much food with them for not really necessarily a long time. 
they had many porters, of course, and guides who helped them. Guides were a little bit like porters at the time and uh, uh, not necessarily respected for their knowledge of the environment, but more like uh, servants uh, helping the the um, mostly aristocrat people uh, going into the mountains. And they would carry legs of mutton. They would carry tons of uh, flour and bread and casks of wine, uh, pounds of chocolate and, and sugar. It, it was a big feast. And nobody talks about how much of it would be eaten or carried back, I wonder. But it was like a, a extended party, a feast, a, a picnic. And um, some of it might be also the romanticism of the period. Maybe these are recorded uh, in, in an exaggerated way. Um, but the first mountain climber in, um, in Mont Blanc, uh, for example, she took with her a pigeon as well as many other things like uh, toiletry items, uh, lots of food um, and gloves and, uh, and other scarves and things that were not necessarily just meant for, uh, for the cold. And this pigeon was to be released from the top when she arrived. In the end, uh, she didn't make it there. Um, and this was a French uh, mountaineer, and uh, they released then the pigeon. So you you see that the, even when there is an ambition, it is romanticized somehow, and that uh, that makes it very very interesting. Yes, indeed. So it was a carrier pigeon they took with them to deliver the message. Exactly. So the pigeon um, they made a really little notes uh, and attached to the pigeon, but apparently the pigeon never made it back. Oh. Um, what kind of descriptions did you find in the journals of these first uh, women in the mountains? You said that they had a different way of uh, taking in the experience. Can you give me an example or two? Is anything stay in your mind about that? Um, I, I don't think I could quote one uh right now on top of my head, but they were more poetic and like a diary of a person rather than uh, rather than a report of a military man. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, quite interesting. What they were uh, describing, the scenery, the flowers, it was uh, like a field note, uh, um, a diary of the, the, the trip in a very personal and intimate way. Mm-hmm. Um, and more reflective, more uh, um, perceptive than saying, okay, we were here at 7 o'clock and eight by, by 8 we reached uh, this uh, corner and from there we uh, took a left turn. And, and this is very, very uh, striking. Yes, the military style is rather sterile, isn't it? And the diary style might be poetic, but it's also somewhat botanical if they're noting... Uh, what kind of flora is um, along the way. It's interesting, that contrast. I would like to ask you about a fascinating um, food supplies that were taken on Everest by the Japanese female climber. When I read what they were carrying, I was so impressed and curious (laughs) Do you remember who I mean? The Japanese climber? Exactly. It's the first Japanese, well, I should say it's the first female climber who made it to to Everest. And that's uh, Junko Miyazaki. And what I have to say first, uh, 
an interesting fact is that this was the 1970s and she uh, was getting ready, got a permit to um, to go on the mountain. But she was also recently married. And imagine at the time, especially the Japanese culture, she felt or she was maybe uh, uh, forced to um, to feel that, that she had to first complete her um, duties in her family. So she w- became pregnant, she gave birth, and when her uh, uh, child was two and a half years old, she started uh, this trip. So all this time, for about three years, she planned the trip, but she wasn't going. And uh, it, is, it is quite fascinating how uh, the priorities were dis- determined, but still the ambition was there, and uh, she in her own uh, set of uh, cultural limitations uh, or conditions, she, she became the first woman to uh, to climb Mount Everest. And of course, her uh, food list is just as interesting uh, and culturally uh, uh, different than, uh, than other climbers because we see a lot of uh, Japanese food like uh, uh, gyozas, uh, these dumplings, miso soup or sake or seaweed or rice cake. And green tea. It's it's quite uh, refreshing. Out of all the pemmicans and the biscuits and and things that we recognize and always hear that are not delicious. So I have a feeling like she had quite nice delicious meals uh, up in the mountains. And what's so interesting about the diet that she brought is that it's no different from everyday Japanese diet. Yet it seemed also to be very suited to extreme travel. That's a very interesting point. You're so right on this. And I think it could be that because in the West, we think that we need to control nature, that we need to create a, um, food that is like a tool uh, that needs to be specifically engineered for uh, certain environments uh, and certain uh, limitations like uh, weight and, and uh, concentrated calories, etc. And it seemed like she didn't have uh, food like that or she chose... Um, suitable uh, Japanese equivalents, but um, we don't see anything like pemmican in our um, food basket. And uh, maybe some things are naturally suitable because, for example, the steak miso soup is already salty, it's already savory, it's appetizing and easier to eat in a high altitude. And... Um, uh, or if we look at uh, sake, I don't know what to say because it seems like uh, still in the 70s, uh, alcohol was um, maybe for relaxing effects uh, part of the, the diet of uh, climate. Yes. Um, but <laughs> it was pickled vegetable, which is part of every Japanese meal, seaweed, the miso. These are everyday foods in a restaurant, you order them, at home, you have them. It would, It struck me as I could have eaten all the food she ate with pleasure. And we see some of this in other uh, climbing um, cultures as well. And, uh, and that's why there is no one uh, climb, climbing cuisine or mountain cuisine uh, or expedition cuisine because everybody brings to the mountains their own background. And of course, from the West, we might have different backgrounds, but our objectives or our attitude towards the event might be so dominating that maybe we focus on the efficiency, calories, rations, and then we might end up all having a standard uh, similar diet like pemmican and biscuits. 
But um, when we look at uh, Russian climbers, for example, they take caviar in the mountains. Or uh, we look at French or Swiss climbers and they took uh, or take still um, saucisson or cheese, mountain cheese with them. So there are things that comfort people and are more suitable for these environments that naturally become become the food of, uh, of the expedition. It's a fascinating subject, and I think you have opened doors for readers to learn more. I would like to now ask you about the pilgrimage and diet, and I would like uh, like you to talk a little bit about Santiago de Compostela, which is the most famous pilgrimage of Europe, which began in 1100, I believe, <clears throat> to journey from northern Europe to uh, Galicia in northwestern Spain to the cathedral of Santiago. And people did that on foot for centuries and still do, some on foot still. So that's a big food, uh, a big food plan, isn't it? Could you talk about that? It is a big journey, and it is very significant because there is um, commitment, there is uh, sacrifice, there is um, a lot of symbolism, and it's um, it's not a journey to arrive to an external point, but it's a journey like any other pilgrimage, more to um, arrive to yourself through a symbolic path, through a uh, predetermined religious path. Uh, um, set of uh, uh, customs. And that's why I think it's still uh, important today, and people, of course, do it in very different ways than uh, in the Middle Ages. But, for example, in the Middle Ages, um, I found that uh, lords were traveling with their escorts, but then ordinary people would uh, go with groups of people, or they, um, um, they would be meeting other people along the way. So there were also even class differences among these uh, people who, who walked the trail. And of course, food was an important element because um, people had to stay in lodges or um, uh, or pilgrims' huts uh, where they could get some food. And they started sharing this information among each other with guidebooks or, or notes that um, what was good where. It was like a gastronomic tourism in a way. Of course, not with those intentions, but it becomes part of the journey uh, to sustain uh, itself. And, and um, go ahead, please. Uh, how did the did the pilgrim plan uh, to carry food, or did they plan to eat along the way in the pilgrim inns? They did plan to eat along the way because um, the ideal for pilgrimage is also not to own anything along the way, not to make it. Uh, um, burdensome because the burden is more um, spiritual. Uh, it is um, about uh, abstaining from food rather than seeking it. So that's the practical element rather than the focus of the journey. And in any case, these are not uh, physical challenges as uh, climbing Everest or uh, going to the South Pole, but um, they're rather um, enable to. Um, uh, restrain oneself uh, from uh, the luxuries of the daily uh, life, 
uh, being on uh, in nature, uh, but not uh, pushing oneself uh, to achieve a certain speed or uh, distance in one day, etc. So they would carry, uh, and sometimes today still you can uh, you can see and uh, buy these, but more as a as a souvenir along the past. They had these uh, shelves they would use for uh, uh, water, drinking water. They had a pouch for essentials like uh, uh, their uh, pilgrimage passports, which would, they would get stamped uh, at inns. Um, there's a whole set of uh, rules, which is uh, interesting because in other environments, we don't necessarily see it this way because it's not dictated by an external organization uh, other than the, the hiking group or a mountaineering group or, uh, or an expedition uh, group. So in this case, there are a lot of symbolic uh, uh, approaches to everything as well. And because this is uh, a very long tradition in uh, Europe uh, from 1100, uh, there, there is, it's, an un, it's understood that you are doing something a certain way for a certain purpose. What, would, what is the uh, time, if you remember, that's required to cross the north of Spain? Because people would be coming from France, Italy, and other parts of Europe. But if you're on foot and you cross into Spain from Perpignan or the Mediterranean side of Spain, is that a three-week journey to Santiago? You remember? Ooh, I do not remember. I, I do not remember. And it only depended on where they started. Because yeah. now today we can arrive uh, with, with a, with a uh, uh, flight to anywhere and uh, make the trip much shorter, but they have to really leave from home and walk the whole way. Yeah, of course. I know that there are people who cycle this, but people always do some of it by foot because that is the point. And as you say, the purpose is to remove yourself from your customary life. And climbing a mountain does the same thing. I think that sometimes a pilgrimage across a long stretch of terrain is harder because you have to discipline yourself not to go somewhere and buy something uh, and not to be distracted and and to and not to um, uh, give up because your feet hurt uh, so the nature of pilgrimage imposes extremes doesn't it yeah, and it's all self-imposed because, as you're saying, the nature, the the geography is not pushing you to your limits, but you have to um, refrain from uh, going out of these limits that are created for the path, for the trip. And, for example, another uh, pilgrimage trail, in, in not in the one in Spain, but in Italy, uh, Via Francigena, uh, that ends in Rome, Starts, uh, it was from England and it goes through France and Switzerland and and arrives in Rome. It goes through Tuscany. There are so many foods that was uh, offered along the way. Some even uh, some recipes of the Middle Ages remain um, active, used, and not forgotten because of this uh, this pilgrimage. 
And some travelers described it like uh, as if they did the trip for the food because there was so much uh, enjoyment. Then you, of course, uh, wonder how much of it is a sacrifice uh, to be on, on such a pilgrimage. That's a very interesting uh, uh, aspect to that to that pilgrimage because uh, it, there's the pilgrimage that is based on self-control and discipline, and there's the pilgrimage that can be uh, enjoyable. Exactly. Also, Inca Trail, for example, it it is a pilgrimage uh, of some sort, or at least it was. Uh, it is said to be on a pilgrimage trail in uh, in Peru, but people today do it as a hiking exper- experience. So it is very touristic, and it could be more or less difficult depending on the the path one chooses or the um, uh, the length of time they do it in. And the high altitude makes it difficult to go. It's a little bit like a hiking trip rather than a, a uh, flatland long distance pilgrimage but it has changed its meaning obviously because we are not Incas and we are uh, very external to the um, to the location so the intention is not, no longer um, spiritual as, as it was meant to be and being outdoors has become very common as an activity in the late 20th century and the 21st century so the approach is not uh, as uh, it's not as unusual. Yes, I, it became. Go ahead. Sorry. No, please. Um, uh, you made me think of um, how uh, these trips became very individualized, because um, of course technology also helped that we have light material, we have better shoes, we have good backpacks. We have uh, also communication technology. We have uh, uh, food packaging that uh, preserves uh, better and is lighter. So it became a personal challenge rather than um, an epic challenge or a national challenge or a uh, spiritual challenge. Uh, Whether we are talking about uh, being in a mountain or in a desert or any environment, even for pilgrimage, things are a little bit more easy, of course, these days. So... Um, the definition of uh, um, of these trips changed with our intentions and with our means. Uh, it seems that there is much more to write about when it comes to food and people as they are traveling in different ways. I'm wondering if you will be continuing to write more or perhaps another book. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. I would love to uh, explore more, in fact, um, uh, but maybe uh, I need more time to uh, find the right angle because this uh, book was a great journey for me to go into different landscapes, different uh, time periods. And um, what I came out of it uh, is the, the learning that it all depends on our intentions. So it's a representation of our intention, what we eat and what we don't. And why we take something is just as important as what we take. So perhaps that angle of uh, um, what it signifies, uh, the food that gives us comfort, that is the, that could be a book uh, topic. It would be a very interesting book. I want to thank you so much for this fascinating talk about your book. 
And we have learned an enormous amount. I have become more curious, and I'm sure other listeners as well. So I want to thank you once again. We have been speaking with Demet Guzet, who is the author of Food on Foot, A History of Eating on Trails and in the Wild. This was published by Rowan and Littlefield in 2017. Demet Guzet, thank you so much for speaking with us. We have benefited enormously from this interesting, interesting tale. Thank you, Valerie. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening. uh, And thank you again from New Books in Food. 